All right. We are in week three of our series just called Vision and Values. And all we're doing at this point is just working through some of those core values that we just kind of see for this church um, and where we're at. Um, and I do want to start just really quickly. I need to dive right in because I don't have a ton of time today and we have a lot of ground to cover. However, I want to start just by apologizing again because um, we started looking back on it now that we're like three weeks into this. Looking back on it, um, we're going to finish up in two more weeks if the Lord wills it and that's his desire for us. Um, we started where we should have ended and we are going to end where we should have started. Okay, looking at it now, I'm like, oh yeah, 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 okay. But again, just reminding you that this is something we're processing, right? Like the little beach ball is still turning for us on this. And this is something that we're going through together. It's not like a turnkey solution for you. This is something we're processing as a church. Even in our art, it's not like we're trying to impress you. It's white on blue, right? Like this is very simple because we're processing some of these things and we're working through them together. All that means is in two weeks when we wrap this thing up, oh, it's going to be good, right? Because that's the best week of the whole shebang. That's all I'm saying, all right? So, so be excited about that. Be back for that. Make look, make look forward to that. This is a hugely important series for us. And when I say that, I mean it. It's also a dangerous series. And, and when I say it's dangerous, I mean it's super dangerous. Super duper dangerous. Super de-duper-de dangerous. It's dangerous for me and it's dangerous for you. Okay? It's dangerous for me in this. Because all I've said all along that we're doing in this series is I'm rending my heart and showing you the blood. Right? See what color I bleed. Right? Hear the heartbeat. And that's a dangerous thing. That's like telling a girlfriend you love her on the first date, right? Like you're putting yourself out there a little bit. And boy, you could get, okay, good for you, right? Like you're just, you're laying it all out. And any time that you're just laying it all out, there's a chance you'll get rejected, all right? So this is dangerous for me. But it is also dangerous for you. Here's what I mean by that. This is the kind of series that you should be paying very, very close attention to. I don't know what you normally do while I'm preaching. If you're playing Fortnite, I'm good with that. But if today you would take that Fortnite and put it down. If you're the kind of person that every time Pastor Allen gets up, you start counting the Edison bulbs above his head and start asking how many are on the right and how many are on the left. If that's you... Today would be the day to just lock in, and this series would be the kind of series that you would want to pay attention to. Let me tell you why, because if Liz and I were to leave praise, and we were to move on and go some other church in some other country or state or whatever, if, if, if for whatever reason that's the path we were, and I were to try to decide on a church for myself and our family, this would be the first series I'd want to hear. What is the heartbeat of this church? Because I can tell you what you believe based on what you value. But if you do a series on what you believe, I don't necessarily know what you value. So this would be the first series I'd want to hear from every pastor. And you're hearing that here. So here's why it's dangerous. What happens if the pastor gets up and he's bearing his heart for you and he starts weeping over something that when you hear it, you're like, meh. Right? What happens if it doesn't resonate with you? You've got some options, and you've got a decision to make. Number one, you could just be like, just ignore it. But I'm telling you that if you take that path, it is a terrible place to be. Because if everybody else's heart is beating a specific way, and your heart is not in rhythm with that, you know what that's called? Heart arrhythmia. You are out of sync with everybody else. And if you are in a relationship with people all serving Christ a certain direction and you're not, boy, I wouldn't want to be in that situation. That's option A. Option B is you could pray and say, God, if this is of you 
and I'm out of sync with this. This is a value that the, the pastor's literally weeping on stage, and it's meh for me. God, I, I pray that if this is of you, you would change my heart. But then there's option C. And option C is, if you don't want to do option A or B, or if you do option B and it doesn't change your heart, and you're not willing to come to where the church is, maybe you need to find a church that's more in sync with your heart. Okay? So this is why I'm saying, just laying out for you, just with humility, this is a dangerous series for me to just kind of lay out there. But it's so important that we know what is this, what is our heart, what are we beating about, where are we at, okay? So here's where we've been so far. Week number one was, was that the best work moves outward. Can't go back into it. I encourage you if you missed it, or even if you didn't miss it, to go back and listen online. Number two, substance over style, always. And then we get to this week. And to do that, I'm going to ask you to grab your Bible. And we're going to be um, diving into this because this is the only foundation that I have to stand on. And so if you would grab your copy of this, if you don't have one with you, go ahead and reach around you to one of the ones that are in the seats around you. Grab one of those, pull it out. Once you have it, open it up to the book of Matthew chapter 5. If you don't own a Bible, that Bible that's in the seat is actually our gift to you. We would love for you to take that home with you. Matthew chapter 5. Because in Matthew chapter 5, there's a verse that we need to deal with. And it's just one verse, and this is really the core of what I want to talk about today, but I have to jump to a few different places, which is something I don't usually do. But it's important for us to be able to understand what's happening in this one verse, so we need to jump to those other places. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount. And right in the middle of that Sermon on the Mount, I mean, simply what the Sermon on the Mount is about, Jesus doesn't decrease the requirements of what he's asking for. He increases them. Right? He says, don't just not murder. Don't hate. Don't just not have sex out of marriage. Don't lust. He says, don't just love your friends. Everybody does that. Love your enemies, right? He increases the requirements here. He doesn't lessen them. He goes the opposite way. And then right in the middle of this Sermon on the Mount, he drops this just massive bomb of a verse. And how we deal with that verse tells a whole lot about our, our, how we see God and how we see ourselves in relationship to God. And so I want to look at that verse. It's in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. If you have one of the church Bibles, it's on page 811. 811. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Here is what Jesus has to say to us today. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. How we deal with this verse tells us a whole lot about how we view God and how we view ourselves in relationship to God. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And there's different ways of viewing this verse, okay? Different possibilities of what Jesus could possibly be saying here. The first possibility is this, and this is the best verse. Like, if you're a perfectionist, can I get you to raise your hand? This should be your life verse. Like, this is the verse for you. Right? This is the verse that you should put on everything. You, therefore, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And there are some people who see this as moral than perfectionism. Right? That what Jesus is saying is that we are and need to be perfect because he is perfect. And, and the way this works then is there's a whole lot of this. Ah, stop doing that. Come on. Don't do that anymore. Right? Like, keep working at it until you are perfect morally. That is an incredibly draining way to live. But there are some people who see this verse that way. There are some people, and this is also a possibility, a legitimate possibility, and I don't want to minimize it, but who see this verse as Jesus laying down something that is impossible for us to attain to. That he is saying, be perfect, knowing that it can never happen. 
right? And, and, and this is a legitimate possibility because of the fact that we know he does this for that young man, the rich young man who comes to him and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and he says, okay, if you want to be perfect, same word, if you want to be perfect, then sell everything you have. And when you sell everything you have, give it to the poor. And the young man leaves and says, I can't do that and walks away and he's broken. And he says, I can't do that. And Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So some people see this verse and they say what Jesus is saying here is that it's essentially he's trying to force us to our knees and recognize I can't do this and I need to look outside myself for salvation. Okay? It's another way of viewing it. And the third way, and this is the way I view it, is that Jesus is not asking for moral perfection here. But instead he is saying something incredibly profound. And in order to understand that, we need to know a little bit about the Greek. And I hate having to say Greek words and all of that on stage. It's never been my style. But about 12 years ago, I graduated with a degree in biblical languages. And every now and then, I think, I need to prove that that was not $40,000 wasted. <laughs> and for those of you who are currently in school, you should be incredibly depressed to hear that 10, 12 years ago, a degree cost $40,000. <laughs> Stinks to be you. <laughs> and anybody with young children. <laughs> but yeah, so I need to get into the Greek here. And I think the reason why really is just the fact that this word is a word that is used often. And the word is telos. In fact, it means more than just perfection. It means end. What is your end? What is the goal? Where are you headed? Finished is a part of that. In fact, when Jesus is on the cross and he cries out, you know, the root of the word that he uses, that word, it is finished. We've reached the finish line. We're done. It's complete. It's total. It's full. All of these can be and are often translated with this one word, telos. So when Jesus says, be perfect, I don't believe he is saying, be morally perfect. Here's how I can prove it to you. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. This word is used of Jesus. Okay? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. In my Bible, it's 1,002. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. Here's what it says. For... It was fitting that he, the he here is God the Father, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of our faith, Jesus, should make the founder of our, their salvation perfect through suffering. So that's a huge verse. Where it says, God the Father made the Son perfect through suffering. Now, wait a second, writer of Hebrews. Are you saying to me that prior to the suffering, Jesus was not perfect? Are you saying that he wasn't the perfect Son of God from the very beginning? I mean, that's heresy, Hebrews. Burn it at the stake. Are you saying Jesus was not sinless? Well, here's the thing about Hebrews. It knows that Jesus was sinless. Turn a page to the right. On mine, I don't even need to turn the page. It's just chapter 4, verse 15. It's on the other side of the page. Here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. The writer of Hebrews knows that Jesus was sinless. Right? So the being made perfect cannot mean that Jesus was made sinless through suffering. So that same word perfect here is not referring to moral perfection. What instead could it be referring to? 
It is talking about his perfection as our Savior, his completeness, his totalness, the fact that it was, he was, his Saviorness was made perfect through the process that he went through. He came and he experienced our weaknesses just like we do. He suffered just like we do. He was tempted in every way just like us. And as a result, he is the complete and total package Savior. It's not that he's morally perfect. It's that his righteousness can be ours because he lived righteously. Right? He experienced everything that we experience and thus can be the perfect Savior. I know this is the case because if you just turn just a little further to the right... Hebrews chapter 5, verse uh, 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect... He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. His saviorness was made perfect because he went through everything that we go through. Had he not gone through those things, he would not have been the perfect savior of humanity. But because he was born as a human, matured as a human, all along the way was tempted as a human, yet was without sin, then his righteousness is ours because he did what Adam could not do. And so it is imputed to us. His righteousness is ours in him. Perfect savior. Complete, total package Savior, not moral perfection. He was perfect already morally. But in his totalness, in his completeness, he was the perfect Savior through suffering, through temptation, through weakness. So what is this talking about, this word perfect? It's talking about our end. It's talking about where we're headed. It's talking about our goal. It's talking about the, when I paint a picture in my own mind of what I'm working towards, that I know what that thing is. When Jesus first uh, talked to the disciples, when they left John the Baptist and started following him, remember what Jesus turned around and said? What do you want? When you picture in your head what you want, what is that thing? What are we aiming towards? And for us as a church, we need to know what our end is, our goal. Is our goal just to grow? Just get the number up? More in attendance? More butts in the seats? More bucks in the offering? More bricks on the buildings? Butts, bucks, and bricks? Is that what we're aiming for? Right? I mean, we need to know what is it because then we know whether we hit it, right? Is it number of salvations? We need to know that. Or is it more? Because Jesus, when he gave the Great Commission, didn't say go and make converts, did he? He said go and make disciples. So what are we aiming for? Well, this word is often translated as maturity. Mature, the end, the goal. Like when you're trying to aim for something with your kids, you aim for maturing them, right? That's the, that's the goal. That's what our target is. Same word used, maturity. So for us, if that's what we're aiming for as a church, as individuals, as we're moving people that direction, what does it look like? We need to know so we can know whether we hit it, right? When I was a kid, one of my dad's best friends was a radio jock in Kenosha, Wisconsin. It wasn't a Christian radio station, but this guy was a believer. And he was a radio jock and did that for several years. One of my dad's closest, closest friends. Eventually, he got a job out in Portland, Oregon and moved out to Portland. As part of that, as he was getting ready to move, he invited us over to his house. And so we went over there and he said, hey, I haven't packed this up yet. I want to show you something. So he brings my dad and me back in this back room, which was like this mini warehouse. At least that's how I remember it because I was a little kid. So it's probably like a closet. But I remember it as this mini warehouse with shelves everywhere. 
Now there, if I would have seen it, looking back on it, I would have thought, okay, where's the Jim Baker buckets, right? Like, where's the Jim Baker power bars? Because that's what it looked like. There were shelves everywhere. This guy's a prepper, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's what I expected to see. And then he flips the light on, and the shelves are full of toys. And I'm a little kid. What is the first thing I do? (gasps) And he goes, no, 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 no. Don't touch them. He said, look closer. They're all in their original packaging. And I'm like, so? And he goes, no, 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 no. They're original Star Wars. And this is in the 90s when it was real Star Wars, not that stuff that they're putting out now. You know what I'm saying? Anyways, the real deal original Star Wars and Star Trek characters. And I'm like, I don't get this. He goes, they're in their original packaging. They're perfect. There's not a scratch on them. There's no broken limbs on these figures. There's no paint missing. It's the real deal. Like, these are perfect. And I think sometimes when we think of what we're aiming for in maturity, that's the picture we have. And if that's what we're aiming for, then what we need to do as a church is I need to Bible you up as quickly as possible, and then we need to saran wrap you, vacuum seal you, set you on the shelf, turn off the lights until Jesus Christ comes back. (laughs) Is that what we see maturity as? What do we see maturity as? And so we need to set that value that we see as maturity. And I've got one indicator I'm going to throw out to you today. This core value, we've already handled the first couple core values. Let me get to this one. Because I think this indicator sets up multiple things. And we'll talk about it really quickly. As quickly as I can, because I want to get to this, uh, get through this. But um, yeah, let's just move fast. Here's what it is. Maturity ever moves. Maturity, not never moves, ever moves. What's the target? What are we aiming for? Was the, were those perfect? Because I remember sitting in that room looking at those toys on the shelves and thinking, that is not what those toys are made for. Right? Like I wanted to rip every single one off and start singing, you've got a friend in me. You've got, and they didn't even write that song yet. You know, that movie wasn't even out yet, but I was ready to do it. Because that's not what they were made for. But if that's what we're aiming for, then we would handle things a certain way. What I see is not that maturity never moves, that it ever moves. Okay, let me throw some verses at you just so you can hear what I'm talking about here and get where I'm going and where I'm coming from. Let's start in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. This is a great passage that everybody, or you probably have been exposed to at some point. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, here's what it says. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect. Same word. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. What is the this he's talking about here? Well, if you look back in verses 7 through 10, it tells you. What he's aiming for is knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. He says, not that I'm already, I've obtained it, or am perfect. He says, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the upward prize or the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Oh, that's good. He says, I'm leaving those things behind, and he's talking about, and you can read the stuff that he's leaving behind. But he says, I'm forgetting those things and I'm pressing forward. And he says to them, I know I'm not perfect yet. But follow the very next verse. This is great. Verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Word mature. Same word. Now wait a second, Paul. You just said in verse 12 that you weren't perfect yet. But now you're saying that you are counting yourself among those who are mature. In fact, look at his definition of of mature. He says, those of us who are mature should think this way. So the definition of maturity, in my mind, as I'm putting this out, is this. People who think like that. That we have not arrived and we are continuing to press into Jesus Christ. That's his definition of maturity. 
Maturity ever moves. You don't stop and say, all right, saran wrap me and vacuum seal me and put me on a shelf. Just the opposite. We keep on moving. We keep on pressing. We keep on pushing. And then he continues on and he says, um, he says, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. So while he says, I forget those things that are behind me, that doesn't mean that I'm just like, Maturity isn't just moving some way, right? Like, it's not like you're just blown this way one day and blown that way the next. You're holding to what you've attained, right? You know what you believe. What is it that is maturity? It is pressing into Christ Jesus. You don't get blown one way with one doctrine and another way with a different one. You hold to what you know, but you continue to press into Christ, okay? So it's not like just one day you feel like, oh, I got another theology that I've never heard before. No, it's anything that pushes you towards Christ Jesus. That's what we're doing. In fact, let's turn to another verse. And I'm just moving as fast as I can. This will be like two pages to the left. Ephesians chapter 4. Another passage that talks about this same thing. Ephesians chapter 4. We'll start in verse 12 for the sake of time. Verse 11 just talks about the gifts of God to us. And by the way, I'm on there. I am a gift of God to humanity. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. I, I mean, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. That's what the Bible says. I mean, come on. Okay, verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Okay, so that's what my goal is. Equip the saints for the work of ministry, which means everything now that comes, your job, our job, right? Equip the saints for the work of ministry. Here's what we're equipped for, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, now here comes the definition of what that maturity looks like, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You could meditate on that all week long. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Community groups will be talking about just that phrase tonight. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We could preach a three-week sermon just on that phrase. But that's his image of what maturity looks like. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. By human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So again, it's not just swinging back and forth. Just the opposite. It's all moving one direction. Pressing into Christ Jesus. But what I love about this is that it is not just me pressing into Christ Jesus. What is this talking about? This is talking about us as a church and me edifying others and others edifying me. In fact, oh, right here, what I'm about to tell you is worth the price of admission apart from anything else. I'm going to give you two words. One of the best definitions I've ever heard of Christian maturity. Two words that you should mull on for the rest of your life. I've been mulling on it ever since I heard it, not thought of it. <laughs> okay, two words. Here it comes. Easily edified. Easily edified. We're easily stuffed. Easily offended. Easily angered. Easily triggered, hashtag trigger warning. Easily distracted. How many of you, as soon as I mentioned the Edison bulbs, started counting them? <laughs> There's a whole bunch of stuff that were easily. How about easily edified? I think that's a great definition of Christian maturity right there. What does it take for you to move towards Christ Jesus? Do you need a preacher to get up on stage and entertain you and then bring out scriptures and then keep your attention the entire, the entire time? What happens if the preacher is terrible? Are you still edified? What about worship? What does it take for you to be edified in worship? Do all the songs need to be the songs that you love to the beat that you want with all the words that you're used to? Or are you easily edified? Oh, man. That's a great phrase for a definition of Christian majority. You should think about that for decades to come. Easily edified. In fact, look back at Philippians. Uh, we don't have time to turn there. You're just going to have to 
Oh, don't take my word for it. Just turn back there. What does Paul say to them? Verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. Listen to this. And if anyone, or if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. What is Paul saying here? I used to think, Paul, you're awesome, right? Only Paul can say, well, if you don't agree with me, God will reveal it to you. And then it's the word of God. I mean, that's awesome. Great, Paul, man. I wish I was just like you. But, but I used to think that. Now, what I hear Paul saying is here, listen, for those of us who are mature, if you're in disagreement with me on this, I'm not going to sweat it. Why? Because you're easily edified, and it will not take much for God to move you from where you are to where you need to be. Great description of Christian maturity. How easily are you edified? He doesn't stop there in Ephesians, though. Ephesians chapter 4, he continues on. Great passage of Scripture. Again, don't be tossed back and forth, but he says in verse 15, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Again, just movement won't get you there. Right? Building the church won't get you there. There's a huge key there. Love. It is possible to be the best volunteer at praise assembly, but be dramatically immature in your faith. What is the key? Love. Is it coming from a place of fullness in your heart? Are you doing it because you love Jesus Christ? Right? And this, he says, is the picture of maturity. Are we doing these things in love? But again... Not just me pressing forward, it's helping the people around me press forward into Christ Jesus. That is Christian maturity. So you wonder with a church like Praise, what should it look like? Because we have a very natural tendency. We have a natural tendency to gather with people who are just like us. Look like us, smell like us, taste like us, I don't know. But we have a, a tendency to want to get together who are just like me. Same place in their faith, same maturity level. It's totally natural, it's a human thing. But here's the thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not natural. And if we're too natural, that just means there's no supernatural. The thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ is it blows up our picture of a homogenous church. It's not all the same. We're gathered around one thing and toward one thing, Jesus Christ. So the more natural we are, the more we should question whether we are not supernatural and whether the gospel has truly laid hold of our hearts. So let's say, just talking about maturity in the church, we should have people who are super mature in their faith. And we should have people in the church who are fresh and new to this thing, immature in the faith. And the picture that I see in Ephesians chapter 4 is that you bring those two things together. That's the pattern. And we edify one another and point one another towards Christ constantly and consistently. That's the picture. If you want to read it again, read it again. So how in the world as a pastor do I make that happen? have no idea I can't do it but the gospel of Jesus Christ can so let's see what the Bible has to say about that Romans chapter 15 
verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Who is the onus on in this verse? The mature. He says, those of you who are mature, don't look to your own good. Don't seek to please and to seek those things that you want. Seek what others need. The onus is on the mature here. Maturity ever moves. But to get to this, I need to just walk you through something. And the implications of this are massive, so you really need to follow me really closely, okay? What is Christian maturity? How you answer that question, how you answer Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, will speak to then how you live as a mature Christian. What is Christian maturity? It's a gift fruit you don't earn it you want me to prove it to you first corinthians chapter 3 verse 5 verse uh, page 953 in my bible what then is apollos what is paul servants through whom you believe as the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Shall I keep reading? So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field and God's building. Okay. Your maturity is a gift of God to you from him. So here's the question. What is the goal of your spiritual disciplines? Is it spiritual maturity? Because if so, you are out of alignment with the scriptures. The goal of scriptural spiritual disciplines is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Look back at Philippians chapter 3 again. Paul says, not that I've obtained this or have been made perfect. He's not working towards the perfection. The perfection is a fruit. Does a tree planted by a stream of water work at producing fruit? No, it's a tree. Right? When I go outside because it's spring and I look at the buds on the trees, I don't need to tell them produce buds. Why? Because God's doing it. He's the one who gives the growth. A farmer does not grow a thing. He tends the crops. A doctor does not heal a thing. He tends what God has created. He, God's the only one who creates. He works with what God has given a parent does not grow their child. They superintend the process of what God is doing inside of them. God's the only one who creates. He's the only one who gives growth. Your maturity is a fruit. You want the fruit of joy? Joy. No. That's not the way to go about it. Know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And joy is a fruit of it. Maturity is a fruit. Maturity comes as a result of knowing Christ more and more. What is the purpose of your spiritual disciplines? Knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. What is that all talking about? What are we being built up into? Christ who is the head. And from him comes all that other stuff. So now, if your maturity is not a badge to wear on your sleeve, but is instead a gift of God to you. How then should we live? What are the implications of that? 
Luke chapter 12, verse 48 is the implications of that. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. If your maturity is a gift of God to you, the greater the gift, the more that is asked. So I ask that question again. Having wanted to build a, a, a mentoring system at Praise for years, but asking this question over and over and over again, how do you bring the two together? I mean, the most natural thing to do would be to ask them to meet in the middle. The most natural thing to do would be, well, for the one who's immature, they're the one who's benefiting by it. Shouldn't they come all the way to the one who is mature? Shouldn't they say, hey, I'll take you out to eat. I'll, I'll buy your coffee. That's the most natural thing. The gospel is unnatural. And what I see is maturity ever moves I will ask more of those who are mature than those who are immature. Why? Because God does. I will ask those who are mature to give up more. Why? Because God does. I will ask those who are mature to move more. Why? Because God does. So we were trying to set up a system because I felt for years that I was not doing a good job with premarital counseling. And I wanted to set up relationships with people who've been in the faith for a while and have been married for a while. And I'm like, how do I put these two together? The obvious thing is to ask the one who's, who's, who's uh, gaining something from it to come all the way to the one who's mature. But then I read scripture. And what I see is maturity ever moves so I ask everything from the couples that I talk to who are going to be doing the, one, the ones who are going to be doing the discipling. I ask them to pay for dinner. I said, I'm not giving you any money. You got to do it on your own. You make dinner for them. You find a way. Why? Because maturity ever moves. They don't gain a thing from it except the gift of maturity that they have already been given. So let's come back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How do we understand this verse? Well, having talked about that end and maturity, and that word, what I see is that the main reason why I will ever ask more of those who are mature is because that's what Jesus Christ did for us, right? That's what God did for us in Christ Jesus. He did not say, hey, close the gap to me, right? No, he came to us. So you want to know how I interpret this verse in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I do not see that as a requirement to work our way to Him. That doesn't work. Right? That totally doesn't fit with the rest of Scripture. So that cannot be what it is saying. Unless it's saying, be total, be complete, be what God created you to be, right? But here's the thing, I'm not going to ask you to do it, I'm going to do it. This is hugely important, because what we see here is not what's called an infinitive, which is a command. In the Greek, it's really obvious when you get a command, infinitive. It's indicative, 
which is a statement of the way things will be. Oh, so this is a demand. But it is also a promise. You shall be perfect, for I and my Father are perfect. So I made you to do something. You don't sit on a shelf in a dark room, vacuum sealed, until I come back. No, you get scratches on you and the paint gets worn off. But that's okay, because that's what I made you to do. And guess what? You've got a friend in me. I'm going to give you that power, and I'm going to give you that perfection. And I'm not asking you to move to me. Perfection, maturity moved. He came to us. He filled us. And then he says, you shall therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's how I read this. And that's why I say I will ever ask more of those who are mature in their faith. Because maturity ever moves. It's what Jesus Christ did for you. It's what Jesus Christ did for me. He brought perfection and filled us. And now we live it. I've got a friend in me. That perfection is here today. Because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for me. Don't work your way to God. That is exhausting and tiring and you'll never make it. Uh, but if he came to you, then you just live it. Maturity ever moves. Would you stand with me today? I want to pray real quick. And as I do, if you're in here and you've not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're far from God. Can I just say that Jesus Christ came the full distance to you? The full distance, not part way, not halfway, not saying you work the rest of the way. He came. He said, It's yours if you accept me. Salvation is yours if you say yes. I'll come to you. I'll bring perfection to you. And then we begin a process that is exciting and scary and difficult and beautiful. And all through it, I will be in you and I will be your perfection every step of the way. And you'll get dings and you'll get scratches, but it's by my power that you will live. Know me and the power of my resurrection and live from that. The focus of our spiritual disciplines is not our fruit, but is on knowing Christ. You don't produce fruit by trying to produce fruit. You produce fruit by knowing Christ Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit making him real to you. That's how we produce fruit. So if you're in here and you've not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, here's an opportunity for you to do it. And Romans is clear. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So we're going to do that. I'm going to give you an opportunity as I pray to confess along with me that very same fact. Say, I confess him as Savior. I believe that he died and you will be saved. Father, I thank you that you came to us and you sent your son who is not a partial savior. <laughs> He's not a savior who is kind of a savior. He was the total package savior. His saviorness was perfect for us because he was all that we could not be and now it is ours in him. I thank you for that. For anyone who's in here right now who needs to receive and hear that message right now, I pray that they would do just as it says in Romans, confess with their mouths, believe in their hearts that you raised him from the dead, that the verses in the Bible that talk about Jesus are true and that you did raise him from the dead. And that same power of his resurrection is available to us. And just like 
Paul says, I might know that. I might know him and the power of his resurrection. God, may they know it today. I confess with my mouth that you are Lord of my life. I believe in my heart, God, that you raised Jesus from the dead. I pray right now for each and every one of them. And I ask that you would just in this moment confirm and affirm to them that you are enough, that you are total, and you are their Savior. In the name of Jesus. Now I pray over this church. God, I pray that we would be mature believers. And anywhere where there might be a gap, May the onus be on those of us who have experienced and received that incredible gift that you have given in Christ Jesus by the power of your spirit. Oh God, as we have been made mature by your gift to us, may we respond by moving towards those who are less mature, just as Christ Jesus did for us. May we feel that and know it, sense it, and live in it, I pray. I thank you for it. In the name of Jesus. Amen. If you're in here and you need pray for, prayer for anything this morning, this prayer team would love to pray with you today. If you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior for the very first time, I would encourage you, as others would step out in a moment when I dismiss, I would encourage you to step down into the front. This prayer team would love to pray with you, and they've committed not only to pray with you today, but also throughout this week. So if you ask for prayer for anything, they would love to pray with you. But if you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, don't, don't step out. And we want to talk to you about those next steps. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are going to have just a time of worship and prayer in here. If you want to stay and worship, feel free to stay and worship. If you feel just dismissed to go, man, I just encourage you to go knowing the power which is in you as a result of knowing Christ Jesus and the power of his resurrection by his Holy Spirit. God bless you today.